Hello and welcome back to the Electronic Intifada's live stream for Wednesday, January 10th. Thank you for tuning in and welcome to all of our viewers and listeners. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman with my colleagues Asa Wynn-Stanley, John Elmer, Tamara Nassar, and Ali Abunima. It's day 96 of Israel's genocide in Gaza. We'll have a full news report coming up later in the program. Plus, we'll be joined by novelist Ahmed Massoud in London to talk about the latest situation with his family in Gaza. And of course, we'll have a discussion with John about the dynamics of resistance to the genocide. Uh, and we'll analyze the latest videos put out by Palestinian Defense Forces. But first, we take a look at the International Court of Justice. This week, the ICJ is set to hear a South African application under the Genocide Convention accusing Israel of committing genocide in Gaza. Should the application be accepted, the ICJ could issue a temporary injunction on Israel to immediately stop bombing Gaza. In the 84-page application, South Africa claims that, quote, acts and omissions by Israel are genocidal in character as they are committed with the requisite specific intent to destroy Palestinians in Gaza as part of the broader Palestinian national, racial, and ethnical group, analyzes Marjorie Cohn in Truthout this week. The application adds that, quote, the conduct of Israel through its state organs, state agents, and other persons and entities acting on its instructions or under its direction, control, or influence in relation to Palestinians in Gaza is in violation of its obligations under the Genocide Convention. Cohen adds that, quote, Israel is mounting a full court press to prevent an ICJ finding that it's committing genocide in Gaza. On January 4th, the Israeli foreign ministry instructed its embassies to pressure politicians and diplomats in their host countries to make statements opposing South Africa's case at the ICJ. We're honored to be joined now by Michael Link. Michael served as the United Nations Special Rapporteur for Human Rights in the Occupied Palestinian Territory from 2016 to 2022. Michael is a professor of law at Western University in London, Ontario, and a non-resident fellow at the think tank Dawn, Democracy for the Arab World Now. He joins us to talk about the significance of Israel's genocide at the International Court of Justice. Michael, thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada's live stream. A great pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, let's start by having you give us a basic outline of what the ICJ is, how it works, uh, and uh, what are the provisional measures that we're hearing about? Sure. Um, the International Court of Justice is a 15-judge uh, court uh, based in The Hague. Uh, it is the highest court in the United Nations system. Uh, these judges are elected for nine-year terms. Um, and they come from different parts of the uh, of the world. There's a geographic um, representation uh, on the court. Um, the court is sometimes uh, confused with the International Criminal Court, which is also in The Hague. The International Criminal Court has jurisdiction under the Rome Statute of, of 1998 to look into war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. And that's where the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court uh, is, is anchored. This is the International Court of Justice, and it's, it has several functions. One of them is to uh, determine and adjudicate disputes uh, between member states of the United Nations. And as such, under its, uh, under its charter, um, 
it can settle or, or adjudicate disputes involving the Genocide Convention of 1948. Um, and both Israel and South Africa are members of the Genocide Convention. Uh, and what South Africa has done in filing its application with the International uh, Court of Justice at the very end of December is saying that we, South Africa, have a responsibility, a universal responsibility, um, to um, to try to prevent genocide wherever and whenever it is occurring. And we think it's occurring now in Israel's operations and uh, military operations in Gaza over the last three months. Therefore, we're coming to you, International Court of Justice, uh, with an application for provisional measures to try to bring this uh, this genocide to a, to a halt immediately, um, with the prospect of a trial coming uh, several years down the road. Sorry, I forgot to unmute myself. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, the 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 significance of South Africa bringing this case and the complaint being rooted in apartheid analysis? Sure. Let's keep in mind that genocide is deemed to be the crime of crimes. If there's a hierarchy of, of crimes at, at the international level, genocide is right at the very top of that. And we've seen that obviously through our discussions through the 20th century of a range of, uh, of atrocities that have been accepted as, uh, as genocide uh, by the international community. Uh, and presently, we have another uh, case in front of the International Court of Justice where the Gambia, just like South Africa, the Gambia brought a case uh, against uh, Myanmar alleging uh, alleging genocide and saying we have a responsibility to bring this to an end. And the court in that case in 2020 um, issued provisional measures, which are the equivalent of injunctions at the American or Canadian uh, uh, court level, uh, asking for this to be frozen, to be for the uh, acts of genocide to be, or alleged genocide to be brought to an end, uh, while the court prepares for a full trial. A full trial will occur with respect to Myanmar around 2025. If this goes ahead uh, with respect to South Africa's application against Israel, I suspect it would be another three or four years before the full trial would wind up occurring in front of the International Court of Justice. But what South Africa is, is arguing is that, yes, you know, we're, we're focused on what's going on for the last three months, but also, just like uh, Antonio Guterres, the UN Secretary General said, you know, uh, this the events here didn't happen in a vacuum. There, there is a long history before October 7th. And, and South Africa is raising the issue that we, we have to understand this in the context of 1947 to 1949, 1967, uh, when the uh, Israeli blockade was brought into uh, Gaza in 2007. All of this has to be contextual background, including the issue of apartheid. When we consider what Israel is uh, is doing now, um, we have to have a wide aperture in understanding Israel's actions. In particular, that Israel is not is is a serial defier of international law. There have been numerous resolutions coming from the UN Security Council, for example, with respect to uh, the illegality of Israel's annexation of East Jerusalem, the illegality of the uh, of the settlements uh, in East Jerusalem and the and the West Bank, uh, the many comments with respect to Israel's uh, human rights violations. So all of this, uh, South Africa is rightly saying, has to be in the mix, has to be in the context. And I'm sure this will be argued by the lawyers for South Africa when the hearings begin tomorrow, Thursday, in The Hague. Mm -hmm. And th those hearings will be broadcast live, and I'll I'll definitely be 
watching them and I know people all, all over the world with will. I have two questions for you, Michael. One is, can we expect the court to take an impartial decision based on the merits of the case and every uh, person who's, every serious impartial person who's looked at the case says it's very strong. I'd, I'd like to hear if you agree with that. The second thing is, are these provisional measures enforceable? If the court says at the end of this hearing or however long it takes, this uh, military action, whether it's genocide or not, must stop pending the court's decision, can they enforce that? What happened in the case of Myanmar? Did the court's prov uh, ruling provisional measures make any difference? Thank you. Those are both great questions, uh, Ali. Um, the first question is uh, you, uh, you asked goes to is this an impartial court? And the answer yes. You know this is an impartial court, and it has delivered important rulings on the side of an expansive liberal view of, of human rights and international law in the recent past. Consider 2004, 20 years ago, uh, there was an advisory opinion that Palestine urged the General Assembly to ask of the uh, International Court of Justice on the legality of the wall uh, that Israel is, has been, was, and is still constructing through the occupied West Bank. Um, and the court issued a very strong ruling in that case that the location of the wall was illegal. It also said that the settlements are, are illegal and also made comments with respect to the illegal annexation of, of East Jerusalem. And more recently, the court issued an important decision with respect to the Chagos Islands, those small string of islands in the middle of the Indian Ocean that um, the United Kingdom separated from Mauritius at the time of Mauritius's independence 60 years ago. And the International Court of Justice in its ruling several years ago said that was uh, that was wrong, that was a violation of international law, and it's forced the United Kingdom to negotiate with Mauritius over the uh, over the return of the islands to Mauritian uh, sovereignty. Um, so I'm, I think we all should be hopeful and expect that the court will rule as judges will in an impartial fashion based on the law and the facts in front of it. The second question, Ali, that you, Ali, that you've mentioned is, if the court does does wind up issuing provisional measures with respect to what South Africa is asking, are these enforceable? The answer is um, no in the court of law. Yes, hopefully in the court of public opinion. You know, there is no um, in international law. There is no separate army or police to enforce these orders. And we know that from a long history with respect to Israel's uh, non-compliance with hundreds of UN uh, resolutions and indeed with the order that the court issued 20 years ago on, on the legality or the illegality uh, of the wall. Um, but let's keep in mind this, you know, international law will not liberate Palestine in the end. That's going to have to be a political task between the international civil society pushing the international community to work uh, with you know, uh, Palestinians fighting against the occupation and against uh, the denial of their rights. But international law combined with international resolve can be a very important uh, tool. And for a country to have an allegation of genocide, even provisionally uh, accepted by a, an important court like the ICJ, uh, would do great political damage uh, uh, to it. So I'm, 
I guess we have to see this as you would want to see this in the realm of politics, in the realm of uh, activism and civil society as to what the court may wind up delivering. But I want, to add, I want to add just one other thing very quickly. No good lawyer would ever want to say any case which, which is being contested is a slam dunk. You know, Israel will have all of Friday to make arguments. And I suspect the arguments they will make will be will be twofold. One, they'll argue that October 7th was a human rights catastrophe, um, that it was an atrocity. Uh, and I'm sure they'll be showing slides or videos to the court with respect to uh, what they said happened uh, on October 7th. And therefore, flowing from that, Israel will be arguing self-defense. Um, they'll say that everything they've done is in, is in self-defense after what arose on October 7th, and everything they've done since has been within the, the strict bounds of international law. Now, I, I'm curious to see how what kind of facts they're going to marshal with respect to self-defense uh, with regards to how they've conducted the, the war in claiming that it's, it's not genocidal and it's not, even, it's not even war crimes or crimes against humanity. That's a pretty tall order uh, for Israel to want to make. But we have to keep in mind that there that there's going to be two two arguments, two diametrically opposed arguments made to the court, and this may influence what the court winds up doing. The court could do three things. It could do nothing, which I uh, with respect to the request for provisional measures, I highly doubt they will. That's what they will do. It could make a, a provisional measures order tailored to exactly what South Africa is asking for, an end to the conflict. Uh, immediate end and a, and a ceasefire, and uh, uh, and to withdraw all of its troops from that, and to allow uh, humanitarian aid to enter in uh, in full into the Gaza Strip. The third option is that they could issue a both sidesms provisional measure, one you know accepting some or all of what South Africa has said, but also directing uh, an order against uh, Hamas and other Palestinian armed groups. Uh, in Gaza, uh, telling them that they should not be they ha should not be committing genocide uh, uh, as well. So it's it's up you know it's up in the air as to what what the court will wind up doing. It'll either be number two or number three, uh, I suspect. Um, and I'm saying that as a lawyer that tries to read and understand how this court winds up thinking. Uh, Michael, oh, go ahead, Nora. Oh, I was just going to ask about the implications for the U.S. Uh, in all of this, too. Does this ruling or provisional mm -hmm. measures uh, or an injunction have any impact on the mm -hmm. Biden administration? Sure. Again, you know, let's think of it as two things, and, and one one in terms of, of law and one in terms of politics. In terms of law, you know, if the court issued a strong provisional measures um, with respect to there's a there's a there's a prima facie case or a plausible case of genocide that's ongoing that South Africa has made out, then that puts the United States in a in what I think is a good difficult position uh, given its its high degree of support for uh, Israel's atro atrocities in uh, uh, in uh, Gaza. Uh, it will mean it will also strengthen the case that has now been filed by the Center for Constitutional uh, Rights in the American courts with respect to trying to end American complicity uh, uh, with with regards to this. Politically, this may be you know that kind of nudge uh, that the United States. <laughs> needs uh, to finally say to Israel, stop, you know, enough is enough. I mean, here we have Anthony Blinken saying on the one hand, there's far too many civilians have been killed, as he said yesterday in Tel Aviv, by also saying that he thought the South African application was meritless. Um, 
anybody who said it's meritless has not read the 84 pages. If I can just say one quick thing, this is an extraordinary piece of legal advocacy that the lawyers acting for South Africa put together. I was worried when I heard this was coming, this was going to be a 15 page slapped together uh, application over the Christmas holidays. This is the best single document available about what Israel has been doing over the last three months and it's accessible to non-lawyers. It is an extraordinary document and the court has to take this seriously. That's hopefully very uh, encouraging. We're, we'll definitely be watching closely. Um, I have two questions. One is from a viewer who wants to know how the judges are selected. I think that reflects a lot of concern given, mm -hmm. I suppose, and I, I'd, I'd love for you to comment on this, the ICC, the International Criminal Court, which is a separate institution, that's not what we're talking about today, that's a court which brings individual prosecutions mm -hmm. against people. For example, it could bring a prosecution against Benjamin Netanyahu or Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Galan. Mm -hmm. The International Court of Justice is not a court that brings cases against individuals. It's a court where states bring cases against other states, if I mm -hmm. have that correctly. Yeah. But Given the fact that the International Criminal Court, and tell me if you agree with this, has been so uh, transparently biased in its dealings with the situation in Palestine, there is a lot of suspicion and concern about whether Palestinians can get anywhere at the ICJ. So I, I think that may be what's behind the question of how are the judges selected. Mm -hmm. The other question I have is, can the court, in its provisional measures, say Israel must stop, Hamas must stop, or whatever it might say there, but can it also say to third countries, we also order that third countries cease and desist from aiding and abetting what may or may not be genocide. We haven't decided on that yet, and therefore no arms deliveries and so on. Is that within the court's power? Is it within the realm of possibility? Okay, thanks. Again, great questions. And these have to be, unfortunately, the last questions that I'm, I'm able to answer. Um, uh, first, you've asked generally, how are the judges selected at the ICJ? And you're asking that in the context of, um, you know, will this, will this get a, a fair shake? And, and what, is, what does that mean in contrast to what's going on at the ICC? The judges are elected by the General Assembly. And um, uh, and keep in mind, actually, that it's a 15-judge uh, court, um, five, uh, and they're in rotation of three, uh, that every three years, five judges end their term and, and wind, up, uh, wind up leaving. In fact, five of the judges, including the president of the court, an American, jo Joan Donahue, um, are leaving the court at the very beginning of February. So that's why I suspect that this current court uh, will want to have the provisional measures issued by the end of January or the very beginning of February, while the, the present composition of the court uh, is there. You're right, Ali. The the um, I guess the, the the job description of the International Court of Justice is to decide and adjudicate disputes between countries, as well as um, uh, as well as uh, decide issues involving advisory opinions being asked. 
uh, by the General Assembly to the court. And keep in mind, there is an advisory opinion uh, that's been put to the court uh, that'll be heard the middle of next month in February um, with respect to whether or not the occupation is illegal. And one of the arguments being uh, the question of, of apartheid. Does that make what Israel has been doing over the last while uh, illegal? Uh, so I, I don't want to lose focus of that uh, hearing either. What impact might this have with respect to the ICC? I share the concerns behind your question, Ali, with respect to how glacial the ICC's prosecutor's office has been moving over the last nine years since the first application was put to it in January of 2015 um, on the question of uh, the situation in, in Palestine. I would hope that the that the 84-page uh, application by South Africa uh, is now in front of the uh, on the desk of the prosecutor of the ICC, because genocide obviously is one of the issues that the ICC has jurisdiction over. And I can only imagine that this will be pushed by civil society and by other countries, including South Africa, at the ICC with respect to this. The pressure, um, I'm sure, is, is, is getting close to being unbearable on the, uh, on the present prosecutor in terms of showing much more dynamism and much more neutrality on this issue than he and his predecessors have shown uh, to date. You've also asked me with respect to provisional measures and whether or not that would uh, include uh, an order to other countries. I'm not aware, um, because I haven't thought of it, whether or not the provisional measures asked by South Africa include um, a demand with respect to other countries. But if, if there is a plausible case of genocide that's reflected in the provisional measures order by South Africa, that would put increasing pressure on those countries that are supporting Israel, uh, either diplomatically or more importantly, militarily, uh, to be able to review and rethink with respect to this. So let's hope that we what, what we wind up getting is a, is a dynamic provisional measures order that allows, that puts pressure on these countries with respect to the support they've been giving Israel and gives an additional tool to civil society uh, to press you know, for an end to arms sales to uh, to Israel uh, and an end, obviously, to as soon as possible to the occupation and to the denial of human rights. Michael Link, we appreciate you so much for coming on the live stream. We'd love to have you back on, uh, perhaps after the ICJ um, hearings. <laughs> um, and uh, we look forward uh, to reading your analysis, which I know um, you'll be writing after this as well. So, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you very much for, for asking me, and thank you very much for the for the indispensable work that the uh, Electronic Antifada winds up doing. Mm, thank you, thank so, you so, much, so much, Michael. Thanks. Um, and we're now going to turn to a quick summary of some of the latest news from Gaza and the West Bank this week, and then we'll go to our next guest, Ahmed Masood. Uh, and a special segment from Ali, and then, of course, um, videos with John. Gaza has become a place of death and despair, stated United Nations Human Rights Chief Martin Griffiths on January 5th. He said, quote, a public health disaster is unfolding. Infectious diseases are spreading in overcrowded shelters as sewers spill over. Some 180 Palestinian women are giving birth daily amidst this chaos. People are facing the highest levels of food insecurity ever recorded. Famine is around the corner. Griffiths added, quote, for children in particular, the past 12 weeks have been traumatic. 
No food, no water, no school, nothing but the terrifying sounds of war day in and day out. Quote, Gaza has simply become uninhabitable. Its people are witnessing daily threats to their very existence while the world watches on. That was the recent statement of UN Human Rights Chief Martin Griffiths. Meanwhile, Israel claims that it has entered a third and, quote, more targeted phase of its military campaign in Gaza, reports our, our colleague Maureen Murphy. But so far, she writes that that has yielded little change for Palestinians after more than three months of relentless bombardment and repeated displacement. Maureen adds that, quote, as the U.S. Secretary of State met with Washington's allies in the region, Israel increased its attacks around hospitals in central and southern Gaza. The Palestinian health ministry said early Tuesday that 126 people had been killed over the past 24 hours, with 57 bodies and 65 injured people brought to Al-Aqsa Martyrs Hospital in Deir al-Balah in central Gaza, where Israel has been intensifying its operations after laying waste to the north. More than 23,210 people have been killed in Gaza since October 7th, according to the health ministry. This morning, Israeli occupation forces shelled the entrance of Al-Aqsa Hospital, killing dozens, including journalist Ahmad Badir. The World Health Organization's Director General is warning of a catastrophic situation in hospitals across Gaza, especially at the Al-Aqsa Hospital, which has been the only functioning hospital in the central area. At Al-Aqsa, WHO staff, quote, saw sickening scenes of people of all ages being treated on blood-streaked floors and in chaotic corridors. An un Unidentified child lay dead, partially covered by a sheet on a bed. Others, other injured were prostrate on the floor, being stepped over by the health staff and families. A man's har harrowing groans, either from pain or anguish, cut through the emergency ward's commotion. The WHO's director general added that, quote, no hospitals are fully functioning in northern Gaza, where another WHO mission was canceled due to dangers and lack of necessary permissions. Elsewhere in Gaza, a mere handful of health facilities operate. Quote, the bloodbath in Gaza must end, he said. This is Sean Casey, I'm in the WHO. Hospital in the middle area of Gaza, the middle part of the Gaza Strip, in the emergency department where they're treating children, several children on the floor and on a gurney behind me, doctors calling out for a scalpel and chest tubes, um, many people coming in from an explosion. There's one child who unfortunately passed away whose body is not identified, and, and it's, as you can see, a chaotic scene. Uh, unfortunately, this area uh, is close to an area that was uh, evacuated yesterday. An evacuation order was issued and um, they've lost a lot of their staff. Uh, this hospital is currently operating with about 30% of the staff that it had just a few days ago. Um, they are seeing, in some cases, hundreds of casualties every day in a small emergency department. Uh, yesterday they said they had one doctor working overnight in this emergency department with hundreds, in some cases, of casualties coming in on a daily basis. So they're treating children on the floor. As you can see behind me, the floor is actually covered in blood. 
um, there are patients coming in every few minutes, um, and it's it's really a chaotic scene. The hospital director just spoke to us, and he said his one request is that this hospital be protected, even though many of his staff have left, even though this hospital is under enormous pressure. The one request that the hospital director said is that the international community needs to make sure that this hospital and other hospitals like it stay protected, that they not get struck, that they not get evacuated, that they're able to continue functioning. That's the critical message for today. Even though this hospital is under enormous strain, even though there's a small child being treated on the floor behind me, what they're asking for is protection for health facilities, for the international community to make sure that this place remains safe. That was Sean Casey of the WHO speaking yesterday. Uh, And as I said, today, uh, Israeli forces shelled the entrance to the hospital. Meanwhile, the United Nations announced that, quote, all children under five, 335,000 children, are at high risk of severe malnutrition and preventable death as the risk of famine conditions continues to increase. A doctor told the UK Telegraph that rising hunger is turning children into skeletons and are at risk of irreversible stunting of physical and cognitive growth. According to the Telegraph, quote, the conflict has damaged or destroyed essential water, sanitation and health systems in the Gaza Strip, hindering the ability to treat severe malnutrition while access to infant formula has been extremely difficult due to restrictions on aid flow. Quote, children under six months of age face the highest risk of death if malnourished, and prenatal babies can even be affected in the womb if their mothers are not eating enough food. The Israeli human rights group B'Tselem said that the acute food, food crisis in Gaza, quote, is not a byproduct of war, but a direct result of Israel's declared policy. This was all from Maureen Murphy's latest report, Israel Closes In on Gaza Hospital During Blinken Visit which you can find on electronicintifada.net. Meanwhile, in the occupied West Bank, Israeli occupation forces have killed at least 21 Palestinians, including three children, since the start of the new year. Nearly half of those killings occurred on a single day, reports my colleague Tamara Nassar. The youngest child killed, Rukaya Ahmed Odejahalin, was only four years old. Rukaya was shot in the back by Israeli forces on January 7th. Quote, while sitting in the back seat of a shared taxi van near an Israeli military checkpoint near the Palestinian village of Beit Iksa in northwest of Jerusalem in the central occupied West Bank, according to documentation collected by Defense for Children International Palestine. According to the human rights group, quote, after Rukaya and her mother drove through the checkpoint, a car driving about 40 meters behind them did not stop for inspection by Israeli forces. Israeli forces opened fire on both vehicles, striking Rukaya in the back. An Israeli military ambulance transported Rukaya and her mother to the checkpoint where Rukaya's father met them. Israeli forces interrogated Rukaya's father before allowing him to leave without releasing Rukaya's body. The people traveling in the other car were a husband and wife whose vehicle veered toward the soldiers, lightly wounding two of them. Israeli soldiers began firing at the car even though it's even after it stopped, killing the couple, 37-year-old Mohammed Abu Aid and his wife Doha, uh, who are 31, as well as Rukaya. Meanwhile, in shocking footage on Tuesday, Tamara writes, an Israeli armored vehicle ran over a Palestinian man lying on the ground after he was shot by Israeli troops during an invasion of Iktaba 
a town northeast of Tulkarim. We won't show you that footage right now, but it is in Tamara's report as it was widely circulated by local and international media. For nearly two continuous days on January 2nd, the Israeli military carried out a raid on Nur Shams refugee camp. Airstrikes by Israeli occupation forces destroyed roads, infrastructure, and private and public property. The Nur Shams camp is just like Gaza, a local healthcare worker told the Electronic Intifada. Destruction, houses exploded, destroyed, people get hit and beaten by soldiers, arrested. Although it is getting less attention given the much larger scale of its genocide in Gaza, Israel appears to be acting with similar destructiveness and brutality in the West Bank, reports Tamara. Israeli forces interrogated about 500 Palestinians in the refugee camp during the raid, including women and children. Soldiers then transferred about 150 of those it interrogated to military camps and detained 20 of them. Tamara also reports that Palestinian resistance fighters, quote, set off an explosive device destroying an Israeli armored vehicle during an Israeli incursion into Jenin and its refugee camp on Sunday, killing one member of Israel's paramilitary border police. An armed group associated with Islamic Jihad's Jenin brigades carried out the attack, according to video shared by Saraya al-Quds, the military arm of the group. Finally, Israeli occupation forces stormed the western area of the village of Azun in a raid on January 2nd, while armed Palestinians fought back against the Israeli attackers. Tamara Nassar reports that Israeli troops fired live ammunition, stun grenades, and tear gas canisters at Palestinians, killing four youths aged 18 to 26. Israel withheld their bodies. Uh, withholding the remains of Palestinians killed during what it claims were attacks, intending to use them as bargaining trip chips in negotiations. Israeli occupation forces continue to invade Azun in the following days. And for more on the latest news from the occupied West Bank, read my colleague Tamara Nassar's latest report, Israel Steps Up West Bank Violence, Killings in New Year, on electronicintifada.net. Well, um, with that, that was a particularly hard news update um, to report on. Uh, but uh, Ali, we have sort of a palate cleanser. Oh, uh, no, we're actually going to go to Ahmed, um, and then we'll do a palate cleanser after all of that. We need it. Um, Ahmed Masood is a novelist, uh, joins us from London. Ahmed, it's so good to have you back with us. Uh, we always wish it were under better circumstances, but thank you for joining us again on the Electronic Intifada. Thank you, Nora. Thanks, everybody. Yes, I agree. I wish it was better circumstances for sure. Yeah. Hi, Ahmed. Thank you for coming, hey. for joining us. Hi, Ali. Hi, Hi, John. <laughs> um, you know, just reading your tweets over the last several weeks, um, you've been trying to figure out um, how you know, your family is able to find safety in Gaza. Can you give us an update on your family right now and, and what they're going through at this moment? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been incredibly difficult. Um, it got worse, actually, since uh, the humanitarian pause that we had because my mum left the north and went to the south, um, along with two, uh, three of my siblings, um, 
And I actually heard today, like just today, I heard that she's now in a tent somewhere in open land um, in the Mawasi area, which is by the beach. Um, a tent made out of plastic, uh, incredibly cold, uh, doesn't have enough blankets. And um, my sister messaged and said that she was crying a lot. And it just broke my heart, really. Because to start with, she moved to my uncle's house in the south in Khan Yunis. Um, but then they had to leave because they had evacuations orders, um, leaflets dropped on them from the Israeli army. Uh, so they, they left to Al Mawasi area, which is by the beach. Um, so, so can you imagine this open bare land with nothing in it, uh, right on the beach? Uh, and I, th I think you know the area, and I think you may have seen sort of pictures of it. There's absolutely nothing in there. Um, so it's really sad to, to, to hear that. Um, and really stressful as well because just knowing that if a bomb won't kill, kill them i think the cold and the weather and the illness that they will develop will for sure and my mom is old and tired and has got so many health complications as well um the rest of the family are in the north uh, they're still in jabalia camp um and they are in a way, it's kind of the situation sort of reversed a little bit in there where sort of the, the actual tanks have kind of withdraw, withdrew from Jabalia camp. Um, but it is like um, continuous bombing and, 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 and um, the, these new things that came up in this war, which are called quad captors. I don't know if you've heard about them. The quad captors are yeah. some sort of robot that basically is like a drone. It's a mixture between a drone and a helicopter. And it basically just goes and shoots people and, and attacks uh, nonstop. And it's very, very random as well. Um, it's very, very hard to get in touch with my brother and sister who are still in Jabalia camp. Um, the last time I heard from them was two days ago, and I haven't had any news from them. Uh, they have barely any access to food uh, or water. My brother's house was destroyed completely. My sister's house was destroyed completely. So they're in a difficult position because not only they can't find food or water, but also they can't even find clothes to wear. Um, in a sense, it's, it's cold now. They've lost their home, so they can't go back and, and pick up stuff. Uh, I don't know if you saw, but I tweeted uh, a number of videos from my niece and uh, my brother himself just inspecting his house. And there was a, a, like a, a touching moment where my niece was just pulling her toy out of, of, the, of the rubble, which was really heartbreaking, to be honest with you. I can't even imagine. Ahmed, listening to you, it, it's unbearable thinking about your mother. I remember last time we spoke in November, you talked about how your brother was asking you whether or not to evacuate and turning to you for advice because mm -hmm. people just don't know what to do in that situation. And you also spoke about your the difficulty your mother would have moving uh, just physically. Um, and in the one sense, I'm glad to hear that she got somewhere else. Uh, it's utterly appalling. Uh, you know, I just think of if my own mother, if any of our mothers were in those circumstances and how unbearable this all is. But just to think also that your story, which is so difficult and so horrifying and so overwhelming, is the story of millions of people that literally everyone in Gaza is going through something just as bad, if not worse. Mm -hmm. and, and, mm -hmm. and that's the thing that 
I I think is just impossible to 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 wrap our heads around and that this is going on and on and on that it's been going on now we're in the fourth month and uh, there's no moving on from it because the horror has has is only getting worse for people in Gaza that's right yes and you know there are the, the, the more we go deeper in this, the more complications are coming out uh, of, you know, obviously winter is biting, you know, in the next couple of days, we're expecting to have a sort of a low pressure hitting the, the entire region and, and Gaza will be, you know, affected a lot. Um, there are the complications, obviously, of uh, not just the food and water, but also, you know, people lost touch with dear ones, you know, they haven't had communication with them for some of them for weeks and weeks they don't know what is happening and what has happened to to their to their loved ones i heard today from a friend uh, whose uh, cousin had a heart attack um, and died because she hasn't hadn't heard from her children for about four weeks those stories that are never going to be reported you know those stories that actually will be in you know ingrained in our sort of memories forever but they'll never be reported because they're not a direct casualty of war. She died because of a heart attack because she can't get hold of her children. Um, my own sister, um, she's in the South. She made it to the South. And um, her kids are still in the North because she is separated from her husband. She doesn't. She, does, she has no news uh, from them whatsoever. And they're, they're very young. Um, and, and I asked her today and I was really worried about her answer. But she has no idea at all. Um, even until now, it's, it continues for me personally. So my brother today was asking me about the news. So I have to connect everybody together. I have family in the north. I have family in the middle. I have family in the south. They have no communication with each other. It's, it's very rare. I spend a lot of time trying to kind of work out eSIMs for them. Uh, one of my nephew or niece um, manages to connect for a bit and then it disconnects. And it's, it's been an absolute challenge from that perspective. And, and I think the worst part is that you just don't know. You just don't know what is going to happen in the next hour or two or days or, 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 or a complete blackout and you don't know how you're going to come out on the, on the other side, to be honest with you. Um, and yeah, and I think so many other complications that nobody, still nobody knows what they're going to be um, as things unfold and continue uh, to happen. You know, a couple of my nieces, uh, they're studying to be doctors. Um, their university has been completely destroyed you know um so i've been asking them like can you send me your papers so i can try and find you a place somewhere else you know maybe I'll apply for a scholarship for you and i can try and help um they can't even log it log in to get to their details to get their papers you know there's nothing to prove that they actually my niece one of my niece is a fourth year medical student at Al-Azhar university which has completely been destroyed the, the, the online server doesn't work you know, all of these little details that are not, of course, so important in the grand scheme of things. It's not a massive casualty, but it's a it's a life being destroyed altogether, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and, and what else is happening to other people as well? And all of those different stories that we will never hear about either. Yeah. We wanted to um, play for our viewers and listeners uh, one of those videos that you put on your Twitter of your family members. So let's go to that. This is your niece, Ahmed? That's right. Her name is Aya. She's uh, nine years old. 
No, wait, 11, sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> and and you, can, you can hear the sound of the drones in the background there. It never goes away. No. She found a stuffed animal under the rubble. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is in Jabalia? That's in Jabalia, that's right. That's their house where I stayed in many times. Um, and that's her sister, Hiyam, my niece. And that's my brother, Khaled. Um, yeah, and he lost so much weight. I mean, just looking at him like this. And you can hear the drone. And in a bit, you'll hear all the bombing, which is very close. And, and were they, did they uh, stay in Jabalia or, or did they leave and then come back? What, what? No, they stayed in Jabalia. Nobody could go back. There is no way of going back. Um, I don't know if you remember during the, I don't know if you heard that bomb going off, but um, during the humanitarian pause uh, that lasted for a week, some people tried to go back from the south to the north, but they were shot. Uh, on Salahuddin Street, um, so nobody who has left to the south is able to go back at all. Israel doesn't allow it. Um, but yeah, sorry, sorry. Yeah, no. I wanted to ask Ahmed if you have a sense of of how many people stayed in Jabalia because Israel is always trying to claim that you know everyone left the north, and of course we know a lot of people did, but a lot of people did stay. Do you have a sense of how many? stayed were your family exceptional or, or was this more common no no i mean i think the what i'm hearing from my own brother and um i've got another cousin um who's quite active actually in the kind of community helping out in the community going to uh, uh schools and, and and refugee centers and um the estimate is four hundred thousand people stayed in the north that's what uh everybody's saying that's from my brother and my cousin but also from the official stats that uh, are coming out um, from Gaza as well. Uh, at the moment, the estimation is that it's about 1.9 million people are in the south, um, sort of like from the middle onwards, from the Sayrat onwards, um, and then about 400k uh, left in, in Gaza. Um, sorry. Okay. Yeah, and, and uh, Ahmed, of course, hunger, starvation, in some cases, uh, no clean water, no fuel, no medicine, uh, collapsed health care system. That's the case across Gaza. But mm -hmm. it would seem to me that the situation would be particularly dire in the north because Israel has divided Gaza from north to south. How are people managing to meet basic needs? You said you, your brother looks like he's lost a lot of weight. People obviously mm -hmm. aren't eating what they should be. But how are they finding ways to cope at all? What are you learning about that? So there's a lot, uh, well, two things. One, um, somehow uh, there is there is a bit of water and like um, some supplies are coming, but very, very basic. And those supplies are some aid supplies that somehow came in from the south um, and, and, and also places that storage, like, you know, like warehouses and things like that, that haven't been bombed. Um, what my brother told me was like a lot of it is canned food, uh, like canned sardines and things like that. 
um, that people are sort of buying from the market, but they're incredibly, incredibly expensive. And people have also, the other problem is that uh, people have run out of cash, so they can't even get cash out of cash machines. There are no cash machines. I can't even send money to them right now in, in the north or even in the south, to be honest with you. It's, it's incredibly hard. I'm desperate to send money to them uh, to help them out, um, but they can't get that money uh, physically. So people are getting together as a sense of community. So if you've got somebody on the street, um, so my brother has moved somewhere else now, uh, and there's kind of a sense of community where they find like a sack of flour, they they bake bread for the whole street and distribute it. Um, you get a couple of cans from the market that came in through a, uh, an, an aid truck or, or something like that. Uh, somebody buys it and, and cooks in like a big stew uh, and distributes it. Um, water is very, very, very challenging. So my brother tells me he has to leave at 5 a.m. every morning under the sound of drones and bullets and bombs, etc., and queue up. There is only one pump still. Like there is a well. Somebody's got a well in there, and there is a pump in there, and they have to queue up for hours and hours until they they get the water. So that is how they're surviving uh, at the moment. But so far, there's been nothing really. I mean, Jabalia town itself, not Jabalia camp, but Jabalia town, um, it is farmland. So there's quite a bit of, of um, well, there are a lot of farms in there. Um, so there's a bit of agriculture in there. Of course, a lot of it was damaged and destroyed uh, already, but there are a bit of pockets of sort of some vegetation still going on um, and like some tomatoes, potatoes and things like that, you know, well, not, not tomatoes now because it's winter, but um, more kind of winter vegetables and root vegetables, um, I suppose. But that's, yeah, you know, kind of trying hard to make do with what they can at the moment. Uh, and, and I mean, what about like medical care? I, you know, your, your mother is uh, in a plastic tent in Moasi, you know, kind of vulnerable to the elements. Um, it's getting, you know, you've talked about how it's getting cold. Is there any sort of um, medical care that she or your other family members are able to receive? There is none, unfortunately. My niece, my very young niece, another niece, um, she is about one and a half years old. Uh, she's had a fever for about a week and you can't even get uh, painkillers. Um, just forget it. Like you don't, you don't even try. You don't even go to hospital or, or, or a doctor or anything because they're full, they're crowded. So in Khan Yunis, uh, the only hospital uh, left there is Nasser Hospital, um, and that is really crowded now with injuries and casualties. So people don't don't go at all. And also now the the issue now Israel has attacked so many hospitals; those places have become dangerous places. So people try to avoid them naturally, and I think that's what they wanted in the first place. So where before hospitals were kind of a safe haven in a sense. Um, now they've become dangerous space, places and people are trying to to um, to avoid them. They, they've attacked the hospital today in, the, in Deir al-Balah. I don't know if you heard about it, Shuhada al-Aqsa. Um, yeah. so, so it's really, really difficult. Um, yeah, and I think that is a lot of people are practically dying because of that, you know, sort yeah. of developing illnesses and diseases uh, as a result. Um, in the north, there's 
nothing. You know, there's absolutely nothing um, in terms of medical aid. Um, so there is El Shifa Hospital still in operation, um, but that's in Gaza City. And you have to think that my family are in Jabalia camp. So Kamal Adwan uh, Hospital was also bombed. So it's operating at the moment with very, very, very limited capacity. Um, and then all the clinics in Jabalia were also attacked and the honor work clinics were also attacked. So there is a bit, but only for urgent cases and the injured, I suppose. Oh, go ahead, Ali. Yeah. Um, Ahmed, we know from our own experience that communications with Gaza are very difficult, that people don't have easy access to the internet or even sometimes to the phone networks. They have to travel uh, long distances sometimes to find internet, uh, and then they can use it for a few minutes, and then we don't hear from them again sometimes for days. That has got to be particularly difficult when it's your mother, your brothers, mm. your your close family. My question is, is do you have a sense from uh, your, your family and people you're in touch with in Gaza of, for example, you said that they can't communicate easily with each other. You're the mm -hmm. connection. Mm -hmm. My question is, how much information do they get about the overall situation, what's happening across Gaza, what's happening militarily, what's happening with the resistance, and what's happening in the outside world? Do you have a sense of that? I mean, they don't. Uh, only yesterday, my brother was asking me to update him with the news, and he was saying, oh, I heard that Blinken is in the region. Uh, has anything happened, etc." So I was actually sending him uh, headlines of what has been happening and all the discussions with uh, around Blinken and his meetings in the Gulf and, and all of these things. He, no, no, they don't. Um, in general, they don't. And I, I, again, I sort of tweeted about that and I said that they, that they are the news, but they don't know the news. That's that's the irony of it, in, in a sense. Um, uh, there are local radios that sort of update in terms of casualties, and so they're still in, in operations. Um, and there are some of the kind of telegram uh, channels that they follow and I follow as well, and they get some news from there. And what they do is that they sort of walk to a certain area with connection, um, usually like a hospital or something, um, especially if they're in the, in the south, uh, download the news, go and read it, and then get up to date and then uh, basically come back again a couple of days later when they can. I, I also tweeted another picture of that. My niece went to this area, was full of people. It was like so dystopic in a sense of people just wait on their screens, um, looking at their pictures. And she took that picture to show me uh, because we were trying to work out an eSIM. And she was like, come on, hurry up. I have to go. There are so many people. I can't, I can't wait here any longer. Um, and... Yeah, so they are disconnected, but they get some news, I suppose, because they are, once they get the connection, there is plenty of uh, journalists still on the ground in, in, in Gaza, even though a lot of them have been targeted and killed, but somehow, you know, there's still more uh, updating with their news channels and telegram channels, and they get those. But often, as I said, they are the news, but they don't know the news because often it's too late. It's, it's out of date because a lot of other things have, have happened since uh, they caught up. Um, but I suppose the kind of wider picture of what is happening, and this has been one of the difficult things is in terms of the Israeli presence uh, in Gaza as in military tanks, they don't know that. 
Uh, and there were many cases and inc inc incidents where one of my friend's family, for example, tried to go back from Gaza City to Jabalia camp and they got shot on, on the way because they thought that it's safe and the Israelis have left, etc. And then, but they didn't know. They just don't know. Um, yeah, I think I, I, I feel like we need a, a live app tracker of the Israeli tanks or, or, or where they are because at the moment in the north they withdraw, but they come back any minute, you know. And like I said, there, is, there are the quad captures and the drones, so they're constantly monitoring the, the entire region and they can shoot at anybody. Uh, so that's been the really most dangerous uh, thing for people not knowing where the Israeli tanks are and the soldiers and kind of incursions. What one thing I'm seeing someone raising in the comments, but I, I wanted to ask you about as well, uh, Ahmed, is the stories that uh, Egypt is or Egyptian officials are charging ten thousand, sometimes more, fourteen thousand dollars to allow people out of Gaza, and these are presumably people who's who have who who. Can, uh, can only leave because they have the proper paperwork, whether it's a medical permission or, or, or what have you. And I've we I've heard stories from other people who've who've told us that that's a long-standing issue: the the sort of bribery and corruption and exploitation mm -hmm. of people in this horrifying situation. But for it to be happening during a genocide and for them to be exploiting the situation to to, to to demand even more money are people talking about that what what's your reaction to that and what are you hearing about it they are talking about it um and to be honest i don't know anybody who used that service uh, at all if it does if it does really exist and if it if, if the figures are correct i'm not 100 percent sure about that uh, but like you said, there, there is a history of exploitation and bribery in, in that uh, regard. You know, um, back in 2009, uh, when the siege was really tight on Gaza, I nearly paid about $700 to get out of Gaza because I was stuck in Gaza for, I couldn't leave, the border closed, and I was there for six months almost. And um, I nearly paid about $700 at that time in 2009. So it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, if that uh, happens. But again, what? this is not official um, and we must stress that it is not an Egyptian government policy. This is hmm. just, you know, individuals who may be doing this. And as I said, I don't know how accurate it is. I think it is likely that it's some individuals who are doing it on their own kind of accords. Um, and again, like that happens naturally in any sort of conflict uh, situation where there are people who will take advantage of others. I think that is that is natural. But there are, I don't think there are any confirmed reports about it that this is actually the process. I, I know that it has. Uh, I, I I remember that our our dear dear friend Rifat uh, mm -hmm. a couple of years ago had told me that. Uh, he wanted to leave Gaza uh, for a trip, for a book tour. I don't mm. remember the exact circumstances. And that at that time, uh, it was being demanded of him that he pay thousands of dollars because uh, I think there was some, uh, you know, asterisk next to his name, let's say, mm. Uh, mm. in the Egyptian uh, database or the wh whoever runs the border. So... It's it's mm -hmm. it's certainly something that has been an issue for years, but 
I can understand also that in the current context, there's probably a lot of um, rumors mixed with truth, and it's very hard to untangle uh, one from the other. This is the thing. I mean, that the point is that is, um, I mean, the Rafah border is one crossing only, and I think we keep forgetting that. Um, Gaza has a minimum of 13 border points with Israel. Um, as an occupying force, Israel has a duty to let people through the border for humanitarian reasons as well. I am not by any means defending Egypt or their policy or position on this. Of course, everybody is to blame in here, the whole international community and how they've kind of stood aside and, and watched um, watched the genocide happening in Gaza. But also I think it's always a debate that kind of... Um, yeah, conflates things and facts in, in a sense, because yes, Egypt is wrong and not opening the border and not pushing for opening it. In fact, they did open it, they kept it open and Israel bombed it uh, a number of times. And, and we know that at the beginning and they reopened it and they bombed it again and Israel bombed it again. But also Israel has borders with, with Gaza. You can't collectively punish 2.3 million people. Uh, for whatever reason it is. There are humanitarian issues there. There are people who need to leave for humanitarian reasons, and they should have, and they have a duty to allow them access. Uh, but people just don't don't talk about that, unfortunately, um, and just kind of focus the debate around Egypt and their policies and how they're doing it, uh, etc. So I'm, yeah, I'm obviously angry if, if this, if this, practice exists and it's true it would make me really really angry um but and i'm sure it exists in some way but but also i think we need to, to look at the wider picture in there that actually the real reason is israel it's not egypt the real reason why people are suffering over there is is, is israel not egypt yeah and i've got a story coming out about uh someone here in the u.s who's trying to get their immediate family members out of gaza and uh, you know they've been appealing to their elected representatives who are you know completely just washing their hands of any responsibility uh saying that it's the state department's um you know responsibility the state department isn't doing anything and and so people are you know going to go go fund me uh to try and raise money to get their family members out when it should be they, they shouldn't have to be doing that it should be you know it, it should be open for anybody um yeah yeah it's uh it's just um it's unconscionable um ahmed how are you doing personally you're so far away from your family you're you know, work. You must be up at all hours of the night trying to make sure that they're okay and trying to mm -hmm. you know, coordinate eSIMs or, you know, tell them what's going on. When, uh, how how are you doing with all of this? Mm. Thank you. I mean, <laughs> it's not a question I often get asked, to be honest with you, because it's the first question is how's your family, and I think that is the right question, I suppose. Um, it's been it's been really difficult actually. It's been very very difficult. Um, yeah, I found yesterday yesterday was very overwhelming, incredibly overwhelming because what you said, like trying to, what what I described earlier, trying to help everybody, trying to support everybody, reading the news. You know, I, I have a full time job. I you know, still working, family here, like all of that. You know, and just kind of trying to to uh, stay afloat. Um, yeah, I did. I did tweet at some point, and I've, 
I still feel, I still feel the same that I feel like a almost a piece of tissue thrown on fire and it just kind of dances in the smoke a little bit and at some point it's going to land on that fire and burn and I think that is still the feeling um I haven't haven't fallen on the flames and burned yet but I feel it's getting closer and closer every day to be honest with you um it's it's really tough like it's now tougher than 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 before now hope is disappearing um it's taking longer more and more things are destroyed people are dying i mean losing rifat that that you know i mean i was mourning for you know like that was very painful very very painful i had to i had to go home and um just pretend when i heard the news i was outside and i had to pretend that to my kids that nothing was happening i had to go home and just go straight to the bedroom and just not talk to them and because i couldn't even open my mouth at that that time um so more pain and more it's almost like the, the, the wound is getting bigger and bigger and going into different parts of your body um i found following actually rifat's death i just kind of I never wrote poetry and I sort of started writing it now somehow, but mostly sort of short, small poems that I've put in on social media. And I found them very, very therapeutic, just kind of really following on his footsteps. Um, we did talk about that before. That I, and I did say, I'm not a poet. I can never write poetry. I, I love it, but I just don't know how to write it. Uh, I write fiction and drama and long stories. I can talk forever, but not succinct, beautiful words put together. Um, but I found that recently actually quite really therapeutic. Um, just sort of like sit down and focus about a small kind of thing and a feeling, just one feeling of, yeah, um, anything, love and other stuff about the war and when the war ends and how things are. That, so that's been, yeah, really helpful, I suppose. Um, I continue to swim in cold water uh, every day in the Serpentine in Hyde Park. It's, it's uh, four degrees today, um, uh, four Celsius, um, with the air temperature of minus two. Uh, just, you know, um, getting a near-death experience so I can feel alive again, but also mm. to feel how lucky I am and how privileged I am. There was, um, I took a picture um, of the water and I put it, there's this big uh, group called uh, the Outdoor Swimming Society on Facebook. It's got about 130k um, people, fellow swimmers who swim outdoors, crazy nutters like me who swim in freezing water. And they're all over the world, but mostly in the UK, it's a UK group. And the picture, there is an admin and the picture took ages to uh, be approved by the admin. Uh, And just as I was about to message them and say what's happening, they um, kind of put it up and then I saw in the comments that a lot of people objected to what I wrote there because my comment, my post uh, said that, you know, swimming in this water, I was just thinking of how lucky and privileged that I'm swimming in this vast body of water in the Serpentine Lake in Hyde Park while my family in Gaza can't find a drink of water. Um, and it just made me feel connected to them and I wish I could swim all the way to them and, and make them feel better. Uh, and give them a hug and something. And there was massive complaints in there about that this is a political post. Um, <laughs> and it shouldn't be. This group is about um, <laughs> swimming in cold water. And uh, you, you, and you should have said you should have said they were in Ukraine. No, no one would have complained I mean, then. <laughs> I nearly did it, to be honest with you. Um, but. <laughs> But, but I mean, to the admin's credit, they kind of didn't delete the post and actually commented on, on the picture saying, you know, no, this is 
as this is the right post. This is about how he feels, and 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 it, and it is correct, you know. And we're gonna leave it there, whether you like it or not. So they didn't delete the post, I suppose. But it's just you know, you know, people on social media they just can write whatever. But it's just a reminder of how people sometimes think that yeah, you don't deserve to live. You don't deserve this. It's actually like if you read the comments, some of them like they would just go make you feel like you don't deserve to have a life like that. And it's just yeah. a reminder that actually there are some people who really, really are just racist by DNA. Yeah. <laughs> just, uh, uh, that, uh, that your very lot. existence is a sort yeah. of political a lot, act, a lot. Sort of attack on them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. A, a lot, a lot actually. And I mean, I think mm-hmm. that's, that's an experience, you know, I, I think about, you know, how hard this is for you, particularly Ahmed being away from your family but we're in touch with many Palestinians from Gaza like you who are now in the UK or in the US or in, in Ireland. And we've spoken to some of them in the, on this live stream and some of them write for the Electronic Intifada regularly. And right now I'm actually in Amman in Jordan. And it's so nice to be in a place where... Um, people don't want you dead just for being Palestinian, mm-hmm. where, you, where you feel surrounded mm-hmm. by people who largely feel the same way you do. And uh, that's such a change. I, I think, in a sense, we internalize the hatred as well, in the sense mm-hmm. that we think, well, actually, we, we don't deserve better in a way. I mean, of course, we, we don't believe that, but you, you start to expect those reactions. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes getting out of places like the U.S. or the U.K., if you can, where Zion, mm. those are the real strongholds of Zionism, sometimes Canada too. I don't want John to feel left out. Um, <laughs> you know, but, yeah. but, but sometimes you need that. You know, if you're lucky enough to be able to travel, you need that to remind you that actually mm. humanity is on our side. The world mm. is on our side, and mm. uh, yeah. it's, it's yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, to remind ourselves. But it's interesting, Ali, because I think what is happening now is even worse because people have galvanized in a sense. There is a split now about the ceasefire and, and the kind of the genocide. There's people who are against it, and I, you know that a lot of people are against it, but there are people for it. This is the difference, you know. It's not like I'm in between. I'm not so sure. Do you know what I mean? Like it's it's either you're against it or for it, which I find incredible. Like, um, and you see that a lot, not just on certain social media, but you see that even on the news. You know, I mean, you know, you saw the. I mean, a lot of people saw the the, the interview with Mustafa Barghouti, for example, with that talk TV journalist, for example. That's somebody who's pro genocide right yeah. um it's clear you know so it's, it's i found that fascinating it's not just like oh i'm in the fence maybe the palestinian question was before um well, i don't understand it's complicated i don't think people now say that it's complicated and i don't understand and i don't know where i stand I, it's actually no i'm against this genocide i'm against these war crimes and wars against humanity or actually mm, israel has the right to defend itself and therefore they should carry on what do you expect them to do all of that bullshit argument that is leading to what what we what we're seeing right now and, and that's essentially from an anthropological perspective it's fascinating once 10 years down the line or something to actually see how people can be governed like that um 
But I, I, again, like I said last time on this on this program, um, I blame the media. I really blame the Western media because they continue to give cover to this. They continue to to push that agenda of genocide nonstop. You know, every day, more subtly now than they did before, but they continue to do it. Yeah. Well, uh, Ahmed Masood, um, we want to thank you for uh, coming back on the live stream um, and updating us on your family. And uh, I think we're all we all resonated with that image, um, that metaphor that you had about being the the tissue paper that's kind of dancing above the flames very delicately. Mm-hmm. And um, I think we're all we're all in that in that mindset at the moment. Um, and we, I really appreciate you putting, um, you know, putting words to that feeling, uh, as you do as a novelist, as a poet, as an educator. Um, thank you so much, Ahmed. And, and we'll be back in touch with you very soon. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. A pleasure all, to our be lo- here. all our love to you and to your family and to all the Palestinians from Gaza, uh, who are around the world separated from their families. We, uh, we're thinking of you. Thank you. Thank you so yeah. much, Ali yeah. and everybody. Thank you. Thanks. And you are listening and watching uh, the Electronic Intifada live stream. Um, before we go to John, uh, Ali, we I, I mentioned a palate cleanser. Um, well, just some light relief because <laughs> I mean, I mean, Ahmed, the Ahmed brings. You know, he, we're talking about such d- terrible things with him, such painful things, but he yeah. brings a certain joy to it. And he brings a, I mean, you, you know, uh, for, for all the pain he must be going through, uh, talking to him, I feel better in a way, which is, yeah. which is straight, which is very strange. It's, it's, it's the way, um, the way I used to feel reassured by Rifat, uh, I don't know how how that is, but uh, I think it's that, um, you know, this is not an abstract thing. This is really happening in people's lives. And I think just simply having that connection, even though we're not hearing good news, I think simply having the connection for me lifts my spirits a a little bit. but uh, yeah, we had uh, we we did we did have something I wanted to share with with uh, people, Nora, because as you know, and as our viewers know, we've been doing a lot of investigative journalism about October seventh at the Electronic Intifada. For example, we were the first publication in the English language to fully translate and publish the interview of Yasmin Porat, the Israeli survivor who testified about how it was Israeli tank shells in Kibbutz Be'eri that killed her partner and um, other Israeli civilians there and not Hamas uh, fighters. And of course, that interview went viral. And we've done so much reporting. Last week, of course, we did the debunking of the uh, New York Times' so-called investigation into the into Israel's mass rape claims, and and even since that live stream, we've it, that that New York Times report has fallen apart even more. Yeah. Um, so all this investigative journalism we're doing, Nora, um, myself, and all our colleagues at the Electronic Intifada has attracted attention from some big name media. <laughs> Tell us more. 
<laughs> yeah, we got we got an email from the none other than the Washington Post, which wants to write an article about the electronic intifada. Can you believe it? <laughs> I mean, I, you know, that's that's. I'm assuming that's a good thing. We're we're getting the recognition well, that we deserve from the corporate media, right? Well, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> we, so we got an email from um, Elizabeth Dwoskin, uh. who. Uh, covers social media for the Washington Post. And she wrote to me saying, um, I cover social media for the Washington Post and I'm writing a piece about efforts to minimize or misdirect information about the October 7th Hamas attacks on Israel. As part of this piece, I'm noting various headlines on your service that point to evidence of Israeli deaths being caused by the Israeli army. I'm also noting that uh, many people I've spoken to who believe that the IDF was responsible for October 7 cite the work of Electronic Intifada. Then she asks a question about one of our articles that I'll come back to in a second. Yeah. But then she asks this question. Do you believe that Hamas was behind the October 7 attacks, as is well documented? Why does your publication claim otherwise, as noted above? We describe the Electronic Intifada as a far-left publication that is focused on Palestine and has an anti-Israel bent. We'd appreciate your comment in the story. So you can see a very impartial reporter there. <laughs> and I challenge, I challenge anyone uh, watching or anywhere to find where we have ever said that Hamas did not launch an offensive on October 7th. I mean, it's just ridiculous what she's implying there. But how does she get to this? She picks on one story we wrote. It's actually a story by uh, uh, Asa Winstanley, who is, of course, right with us here. And this was a story that you wrote, Asa, in November. Uh, there it is on the screen. The evidence Israel killed its own citizens on 7 October. And Asa, this was an article that compiled all of the solid evidence, including Yasmin Parat's interview, which we had published uh, earlier, and the other reports and other pieces of evidence that had come out up to that point, showing clearly, not that, you know, I mean, just to be clear, clear Asa, you don't say in that article that Hamas didn't launch an offensive on Israel's military bases and, and settlements on October 7th, right? You don't say that. Yeah, I mean, I, I found that quite striking, uh, rereading that email from Elizabeth Doskin there. I mean, it really suggests that she hasn't read the article but beyond perhaps the headline um, because further down the article, I describe it as, uh, you know, I mentioned um, Yasmin Porat was a survivor of Kibbutz, quoting... Survivor of Kibbutz Be'eri, one of dozens of Israeli settlements along the frontier with Gaza, that Palestinian fighters assaulted on the 7th of October. I describe it as a as an assault by the, the Palestinian resistance led by Hamas. Like there's no, so, you know, so, so, so for her to say so, that is... So she's untrue. lying about what's in your article. She's claiming... She's she either lying, lying or she hasn't read it, which, you know, I'm not sure which one is worse, to be honest Well, I, I mean, I, I think she must have read it because I think what happened is she said 
that, you know, lots and lots of people who are saying that the Israeli army killed its own people on October 7th are citing the electronic intifada or sharing our stories, which is fantastic. Right. It's great to have that confirmation from the Washington Post yeah. that our work is reaching far and wide. But I suspect that, you know, she and her colleagues at the Washington Post have had a very frustrating time over the last few weeks going through all our articles, clicking on all the links, uh, hoping to find an error, hoping to find a mistranslation, and then saying, dang, there they go again being accurate. Oh, their translation, 100% correct again. We can't find anything wrong with these people's reporting, but we've yeah. been assigned this job of representing them as crazy far-left conspiracy theorists who are saying that that uh, Hamas didn't launch an offensive on o October 7th. Uh, so it's just incredible to me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this, this is... But the, that, the that was the email she wrote to us, yeah. And Ali, you replied to her and put it up on Twitter, right? I did. I sent a reply. I think we can show it on the screen. I don't know if you want me to read the whole thing, uh, but I know that some people are listening and that type is very small. So yeah. maybe maybe I'll just read a little bit of it to give people a sense of it. Great. And I said, uh, dear Ms. Dwoskin, it would appear that the reach and success of the electronic intifada and debunking and exposing the kind of pro-Israel propaganda routinely published by the Washington Post is now causing enough worry that you have been assigned to do a hit piece in which labels such as far left and anti-Israel will be deployed in order to try to, to misdirect your readers from our careful factual reporting. I suggested also that more accurate labels for our publication might be pro-fact, pro-Palestinian rights, pro-international law, and anti-genocide. But um, because the Washington Post is unable to poke holes in our reporting, they have to rely on these dog whistles and labels uh, like far left or anti-Israel just because they, they cannot show to their readers that we're actually wrong. And I did point out that we were the first publication to fully translate the interviews of Yasmin Parat. Uh, and we revealed that, it, uh, and who, who revealed? Yasmin Parat revealed that it was Israeli tank fire, not Hamas, which killed her partner and other Israeli civilians there. And I noted that the Washington Post has completely neglected and ignored that story. Mm -hmm. And uh, I also said that we're very happy to see a wide and growing audience for what we do, careful factual reporting, and that this is causing worry to the Washington Post. And uh, I said we would continue to do our factual reporting, and I have no doubt she would continue to do her smears and propaganda <laughs> on behalf of supporters of genocide. And I did put that uh, her email and my response up on uh, Twitter, and it went absolutely viral. I was surprised. It's been uh, retweeted and liked, uh, you know, thousands of times and made quite a big uh, impact. So that was quite yeah. nice to, to see. And of course, uh, <laughs> EI is not the only publication that uh, attracted the Washington Post's interest. Um, of course, the gray zone as well got a similar. Yeah, query. 
Yeah, they did. And uh, actually, before we go to that, uh, let's just say a little bit more about Elizabeth Dworskin, because I think that will be uh, provide us a bit of yeah. context with that. Because when we got this email, we looked into her, and she is the Silicon Valley correspondent of the Washington Post. It all sounds very, um, very uh, wholesome. Uh, but Tamara, uh, can you look? Can you show the second tweet in my thread? that uh, the original post, I'm sorry if I didn't set that up with you earlier, but actually we looked back at Elizabeth Droskin. She was a student at Columbia University in the early 2000s. And at that time, she wrote an article for the Columbia Spectator, which is a campus, uh, a campus publication uh, in which uh, she maybe... Uh, click on that second uh, image in the in the tweet yeah where she's talking about the Nakba in 1948 and she says that before the British swept in there was no Palestinian nation the territory was taken from the ailing Ottoman Empire and consisted of desert Bedouins without a sense of national identity as we know it today so Elizabeth Dwoskin, who has been assigned to write this article about the electronic intifada, is a Nakba denier. She denies the existence of the hundreds of Palestinian cities, towns, and villages, and suggests that there was nothing there but uh, a few so-called desert Bedouins. So she's actually an extreme right-wing Zionist, is what she reveals herself to be here. And uh, if you look at her Washington Post author page. We can go back to that now, uh, Tamara. And I don't know if we can scroll down to some of her articles or if, if that's a screenshot. But she does these propaganda pieces for the Washington Post, including one that she actually bragged that she spent two years on. It's a terrible article. I read it. Um, I think it's uh, the... Keep going, keep going, keep going. Uh, oh, yeah, there it is. How Russian Disinformation. This is just an incredible piece of work that she spent two years on. I don't mean incredible as a compliment, but um, <laughs> she actually, in the setup to this article, she, uh, I don't know if you can scroll down to the first paragraphs, Tamara. She actually, yeah, that's good. She, the heroes in this story are these pair of Israeli spooks called Roy Burstein and Lior Chorev, who are up to no good in Africa. They, as she describes them, one is a veteran political operative and the other a former army intelligence officer who run like a political dirty tricks company, uh, which uh, you can hire to do political dirty tricks for you, uh, to publish fake news and this sort of thing. And they were, had been hired to keep the president of Burkina Faso uh, in power. And she paints them as like the good guys in this story. And she claims that in their work, they discovered that the people of Burkina Faso and other countries in Africa that have been throwing out French and American and other neo-colonialists were actually put up to it by Russian disinformation. So mm. just the same way Hillary Clinton lost the 2016 election because of uh, uh, 
Vladimir Putin putting funny memes on Facebook, according to all of the American media for years. Uh, <laughs> people in Africa are demanding their sovereignty, their dignity, their independence, their control over their resources because they're being manipulated by big, bad Russia. This is the person who is doing this uh, story on us and also, as you pointed out, The Gray Zone, uh, which is another publication that has also been focusing on uh, debunking many of the lies about October 7th. And I wrote... May not be on the story anymore. She may have been pulled. We don't know. I mean, she takes takes two years to write a story. So I I, I think it's too early to tell. We'll have to wait at least two years to know if the story has been been, uh, spiked. But uh, I wrote back to that email and she did respond with one word and say received. So I know she she got it. But uh, uh, the gray zone took a slightly different approach. Uh, and I think we can run that video now. By the way, in, in the email, she did include her phone number. I, have, I of course, didn't publish her, her phone number, but uh, I assume she sent it to the gray zone too. And, and they decided not to write back, but they decided to call her. So we can have a look at that. Let's try one more time because you never know. And this is Max Blumenthal and Aaron Maté of the Gray Zone. Here we go. Hello? Yeah, hi. Is this Elizabeth Devoskin? May I ask who's calling? Yeah, hi. It's Max Blumenthal from the Gray Zone, and I'm here with my colleague, Aaron Maté. Oh, okay. Thank you so much for calling. Sure. Um, yeah. You wanted so, to talk about our factual journalism? I did. Um, <laughs> I wanted to interview for my piece. Um, yeah, I got an email from you accusing us of minimizing the atrocities on October 7th. Um, so I'm wondering if it's possible, um, because I'm about to be on another call, if we could um, schedule a time to speak Monday or Tuesday. Um, I'd like to talk right now before we, we do that, because I am confused based on the, the, the language in your email, you are accusing us of minimizing atrocities on October 7th, but you're not, it doesn't seem like you're, I'm trying to figure out what you're trying to do here and why you're, it seems like you're, planning to attack the investigative journalists who have helped expose a major scandal, us and Ali Abunima, which has been confirmed even by Israeli media and by Israeli military officials like Colonel Golan Vak, in which Israel killed Israeli civilians on October 7th. There were friendly fire orders. You're attacking us instead of doing the investigation yourself on this scandal. And I'm really confused about why that is. Um, so I definitely want to talk through everything. I don't want you to feel attacked. Um, I want to talk you through points in the story. Um, I'm of course aware that there was that there were deaths due to friendly fire, um, and I've read the Israeli media reports as well, um, some of which you cite. And it, yeah, let's just. So how are we minimizing? Just tell me now. How are we minimizing atrocities by reporting these facts? So I'm about to be on another call and you're kind of springing on me. Um, what I appreciate doing is scheduling a time to talk so that we can, I can hear everything that 
you have to say and talk you through everything. Just the, the way question is for you. No, wait, Aaron. Aaron, sorry, Aaron Mate. Aaron Mate has a question. It's yeah. not at all. The, I can't always get him here. We didn't contact you. You contacted us, so we want to hear from you. What is your issue with us? How are we minimizing what happened on October seventh? If you believe that, since you wrote it, it should be easy to explain. So let's hear it. So. I appreciate you asking my question. My other call is starting asking me questions. My other call is starting in a minute. When is your um, other call over? I, I don't know. It's another interview. Um, but I just I I, I mean no, but we really need to we really need to we need to have trust. We need to have trust before we, we go any further. And I see that you have minimized the Nakba of Palestinians writing for Columbia University's paper. You describe them as just a bunch of desert Bedouins. Are you a Zionist? You know, I'm. I'm not sure. Like, I, I, I mean, I see you retweeting I, Barry Weiss, who's a major supporter of the Israeli genocide in Gaza. And I need to know: Are you ideologically committed to the system of Zionism? And I'm, it's very curious that someone like that would be assigned to this story. Uh, and it's also curious to me that the Washington Post refuses to investigate the real story and hold accountable this powerful apartheid state and is instead attacking independent journalists. You are afflicting the afflicting, afflicted and comforting the powerful as the Washington Post has traditionally done. So why, why should we even trust you to set up some kind of call? I mean, that is completely up to you uh, to do so. Are you a Zionist? Sir, that is completely up to you to set up a call. This isn't about any personal biases, ideologies. That's not what this. Do you support Israel's military campaign about. in Gaza? Excuse me. What is? It? I feel like you're interrogating me, and my well, other you call is starting. You deserve um, to be interrogated. It's highly inappropriate know. that someone who seems to have such deep affection for an apartheid state committing genocide would be assigned to this story and is attacking independent journalists who produced factual journalism on a major scandal instead of holding to account the state and military responsible for that scandal. And by the way, why is the Washington Post always minimizing genocide, the attack on the Maghazi refugee camp? It was referred to as just uh, strikes against Hamas in the Washington Post. Where is this? You're the social media reporter. Where is the report on all of the Israeli social media posts, the TikTok posts celebrating the genocide of Gaza, mocking people in Gaza for having their water and energy turned off, the Israeli soldiers in Gaza proudly committing war crimes on TikTok, broadcasting it to the world. Have you written one story about that as the social media reporter? So feel free to send me anything, any articles or clips that you think. Feel free to answer the question. Being a sub that you feel free to send me or any articles or clips. See, this is why nobody trusts corporate media and why they're reading electronic intifada in the gray zone, because you can't even answer these questions. You can't even tell us about your own Zionism and why you're doing this hit piece. You're. I'm really just taken aback. Why? I I'm taken aback. Okay, well, I apologize for being taken aback, but I feel like the next step, the natural step that anyone does when one is interviewing a story subject is for anyone who's mentioned or has a reference in a story is to talk a whole thing through, to schedule a time and talk it through. So that's all I'm saying. I'm you didn't even ask call, me in the email so to schedule a time or talk it through. 
so I apologize. You could have sent um, questions. Because I'm running late to another call. Um, so I'll send a follow-up email to your email with suggesting some time. Does that work? Do you, do you still believe that, that Palestinians, that the people of Palestine were just desert Bedouins before, before Israel? Okay. Wow. Yeah, so... Yeah, so that's Elizabeth Dwoskin, who has been assigned to do a hit piece on the Electronic Intifada and the Grey Zone, and perhaps other independent publications too, I don't know. But, you know, let me just say that uh, it's very flattering that our work has become effective enough that the Washington Post, or whoever put them up to it, thinks that we need to be taken down a notch by uh, having, and I, I sincerely hope the article comes out. I yeah. think that will be a laugh riot, and um, we should, uh, we would, we would have a lot of fun with that. But also, let me say, of course, uh, not waste the opportunity to say thank you. All of this fantastic investigative reporting <laughs> and all the reporting we do that is causing such anguish at the Washington Post is thanks to our viewers and readers. Uh, and so thanks for all your support and uh, keep it coming. Absolutely. <laughs> Amazing. Um, can I well, make, uh, yeah. before oh, we move on ahead. to the yeah. next section, can I make one quick point? Yeah, yeah. just uh, about my article. Um, just to note that, irony actually that one of the a key source in the article is actually the washington post mm -hmm. um tomorrow if you scroll down to um this yes here we go that image um yeah if you could scroll up to that image um the when you know when you posted this e email her email and your really brilliant response early online i saw a lot of people and max in that clip made the point as well that instead of doing this hit job, the Washington Post should be putting its resources into actually investigating this stuff, you know, because the evidence is there, you know, it, it wasn't yeah. just Kibbutz Be'eri and Yasmin Porat. It, the, similar things happened all over the South in, all, in, in many of these settlements. And we don't know, you know, the full extent of it yet. And you can see this image is actually from a Washington Post video Right, they already of, have reporters uh, there. Yeah, it's it, it's all of this evidence is there in plain sight, and the mainstream media, like Washington Post, is choosing ideologically to They're ignore pretending it. not it's, to yes. see any of it, and then they are turning on us, a small independent publication, and and they're enraged because we're actually doing the work they should be doing of of digging through the evidence, piecing it all together translating the material from Hebrew, checking it once, checking it twice, checking it three times. They have not been able to lay a finger on our reporting. Yeah. They haven't been able to say you mistranslated this or you got this wrong or you got that wrong. Because if they had, she would have put it to us. She would have put it in her email. This is a hit job to try to smear us. And I have to say, I'm very proud, as I said in the email, the, of the work we're doing, that it has uh, caused this much anger at the semi-official mouthpiece of the United States government yeah. uh, in Washington. And our video, our, I mean, this is a point we've made before, but you know, our viewers will be familiar enough with the Palestinian resistance's weapons by now to know that that 
image that we saw in in that Washington Post, uh, in, in that still that I used in my article from the Washington Post video, there's no way. I mean, that that looks like a, that is from an Israeli settlement, Kufa Azza, uh, Gaza village in Hebrew. Um, and, you know, there's no it looks like a house in Gaza that's been flattened by Israeli shelling because it was flattened with the same weapons. Mm -hmm. Well, Ali, keep us posted on Elizabeth's uh, reply, obviously. Um, and with that, John. Hi, John. Hey, can I say that I believe October 7th was a devastating military raid that collapsed the Gaza division and captured the commanders of the division and brigade level who will presumably free all Palestinian prisoners in jail and put Palestinians on uh, a trajectory for statehood after being ignored for uh, decades? Here we go. This is really the untold know. story. This is the untold story. Yeah. Just so we know, just so everybody's very clear uh, about it. And I think that there'll be more time to talk more about October 7th and we should do something. And I, I look forward to these uh, human rights groups and media outlets uh, who have tons of resources um, to do investigations uh, about what happened in the south of Israel. And mm -hmm. uh, we welcome those investigations and would love to see them. I mean, the Washington Post spent 50 days um, telling us that there was uh, a basement in Shifa Hospital. They have all their reporters right there. Why don't they right. go into these settlements and tell us what happened and break it down? Um, because what we know is that uh, what's on camera and what's shown on video from fighters and CCTV uh, camera footage is a devastating military raid with uh, almost unspeakable uh, levels of intelligence um, that dismantled Israel's Gaza division. So nobody's downplaying the significance of that. Nobody's accusing uh, Israel of creating October 7th. It was created by the hands of Palestinians in the Gaza Strip under besiegement. Um, and it was a devastating success that military historians will study for generations if the world still exists that long. <laughs> and with that, um, John, you have uh, obviously been watching some of the most recent uh, videos that the Palestinian resistance have um, continued to put out, also with devastating success against the enemy. Um, give us a rundown of, of what you've been watching the last uh, week or so, and um, let's, let's watch some of these examples. Sure. So let's start. We're going to start with Lebanon. Um, because in Lebanon, uh, Hezbollah carried out a raid here on uh, the Maron air control uh, base of the Israelis, which is a secret Israeli base here, eight kilometers across the border. Um, and that's a, 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 the Israelis don't say what it does. It's obviously a very significant uh, base that's in control of the management and surveillance of their air power, controlling their drone warfare. And it's one of only two bases in Israel. They have one in the north and one in the south that handles all of this. Um, and this is in response to the assassination of Salah Haruri um, that Nasrallah said the other day um, was imminent. And then the next day, uh, this attack happened. And what we're seeing here is 62 missiles um, fired on this critical uh, Israeli base that there's no replacement for. Those domes are long range radar domes that are used to um, basically for war uh, uh, warplanes and drones, air traffic control. 
um, and intelligence and surveillance. And so what we're watching here is a Hezbollah attack on this facility, which shows, um, the video will, will, will go back around again, but shows clearly that Hezbollah has detailed intelligence on something that is otherwise secret um, because of Israel's military censor. There's a number of, uh, of clauses in their censor that would cover an attack like this. You can't report on the capabilities. So this is the look, the view from Lebanon uh, into um, this Maron uh, air traffic base. This is the highest mountain in occupied Palestine, um, and it has overlook over the whole region. It's who um, is in control of the assassinations, for example, of Sahla Haruri, who was killed, as we reported last week, uh, in the Dahia by a drone strike. Um, as well as their attacks in Syria um, and any long-range uh, threats from the north. And so what we're seeing here is Hezbollah attacking it in detail, 62 missiles um, clearly hitting the base. We're showing um, footage from Hezbollah showing them uh, hitting that base, which is clear. Um, obviously, qualitative upgrade in the type of attacks coming from Lebanon. This is um, the deepest attack to that point um, that Hezbollah had hit inside uh, of Israel. When Israel changed the rules of the game by hitting the Dahia, they opened themselves up for this type of attack. And this is really the unknown question of about a war with Hezbollah is we haven't seen Hezbollah's capabilities since 2006. And what's, what's not clear is how much intelligence and how much their precision guided missiles are able to hit uh, the targets that they want to hit with devastating payloads. Um, and so this is just really the tip of the iceberg of if Israel was going to open uh, a front in the north. But we can see um, that Hezbollah has this capability. They're hitting here, um, they're hitting here with anti-tank missiles um, fired from, from Lebanon. Um, which which travel below the Iron Dome. So Israel's unable to knock these weapons out of the air. And the IDF had to admit, even though it's shrouded in sensors, they had to admit that they had to call on their backup uh, surveillance and air traffic control in the north, which apparently is our balloons, um, because there's no replacement for this base. And look at this 3D modeling that Hezbollah has of every aspect of the base that they're detailing here. Um, so I think really it's just a tip of the iceberg about what we're seeing. And then just to bring the media into this, the New York Times called this uh, a symbolic, uh, uh, like a meaningless symbolic attack that they said hit, hit a small military base. That's how they uh, reported on this attack, which is clearly a qualitative increase in the war and would be something that would be important to report on if you weren't um, uh, dependent on uh, Israeli censors. And what we're seeing there with the two circles is uh, Hezbollah's um, double anti-tank missile. They combined the Cornet potent anti-tank missile um, into a double launcher, uh, which is designed to defeat Israeli tank protections um, and is something that uh, presumably in a war we will see a lot of um, to uh, very significant effect. The Cornet anti-tank missile is, a, uh, is a, a significant increase over the weaponry that the Palestinians have in the Gaza Strip that we've been talking about for the last uh, little while. Um, but if you want to show the next one tomorrow, we also show, uh, we have a video here of, of uh, Hezbollah hitting a, 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 an IDF uh, Merkava tank in 
uh, in northern Israel occupied Palestine. Um, so that the we're able to see in this attack both the response to the uh, Salah Aruri assassination, which indicates that Hezbollah knows who has control over that kind of operation. They're hitting the people in this air control base who are controlling the drone warfare uh, that's carrying out these attacks. Um, and Israel responded to this attack by assassinating a senior uh, field commander of Hezbollah in the Radwan units, which is their special forces units that are along uh, the border in this case. And the, the assassination, like most of Hezbollah fighters, we don't know who they are until after they die. Uh, but they released, uh, Hezbollah released images of him yesterday, and he was part of the 2006 cross-border raid that began the July uh, 2006 war by capturing Israeli soldiers and exchanging them for uh, Hezbollah and Palestinian prisoners. Um, and so, uh, um, and Hezbollah responded to that by reaching the Safed uh Israeli military base, which is 13 kilometers across the border. So we're seeing incremental increases in the war in the south, in the north, I'm sorry, on the northern front um, that uh, attempts to pull significant Israeli resources away from the south, which is one of the balances that's happening right now. And what we're um, trying to understand breaking this stuff down in real time because of the Israeli military censor, um, because of the blackout in Gaza that that Ahmed talked about so well, um, we don't have all of the information um, that we would normally under normal circumstances have. So we're analyzing a lot of this stuff uh, in, in real time. But um, what it looks like Israel's doing in the South is trying to free up some of its forces um, to move into, uh, to be able to combat what's happening in the West Bank and also what's happening in the north with Hezbollah, because Israel has hundreds of thousands of its people out of their settlements, um, and they're promising not to go back to their settlements unless these Radwan units, these Hezbollah special forces units, um, are pushed back from uh, the border where they are right now. And so Israel's in a real predicament here. And um, it's not clear to me that uh, provoking a war with Hezbollah is the best idea uh, at this moment. And I think on Electronic Intifada, we're going to get into this more um, in, on a future show with uh, Amal Saad, which would be great to hear uh, her perspective on this, because um, it does seem like Israel is uh, careening towards war in the north. So I just wanted to show you that uh, those videos before we switch to Gaza. I don't know if you had anything you wanted to say about that one, Ali, before I switch to Gaza here. Well, I just I just think it, it the 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 point I really would emphasize is the one you made the great question mark hanging over the north because Hezbollah beat Israel in two thousand six that's almost two decades ago so we really don't know what their full capabilities are and so that that is really the big question mark. Yeah, I'm I'm also uh, really looking forward to the interview with Amal Saad. Um, who's an expert on Lebanese resistance and, um, and the history of, of Lebanon. Uh, and so, yeah, let's, let's uh, head over to Gaza. Yeah, John, head over to Gaza, us. where Israel says that 2024 is the year of warfare uh, in Gaza. Um, we're just going to show you some maps because we talk a lot about Gaza 
Um, but we, uh, we don't, uh, it's really difficult, I want to just say to viewers, it's very difficult to find maps of Gaza that aren't either just um, maps like this, this is bomb damage, um, this is what 30,000 airstrikes uh, looks like, plus tank shelling in the hundreds of thousands. Um, that's northern Gaza that you're seeing with the red splotches, and Israel's promising to do to the south what they did to the north with that map. Um, and then the next map, if we could show here, Tamara, is the, um, this shows the Israeli uh, tank movements uh, in the area, um, which overlap um, considerably with the bomb damage map because they, uh, they preface their invasion by showing, uh, by bombing the uh, leads for all of their armored vehicles. And so the map with the armored vehicles uh, movements shows um, that there's considerable overlap with the bomb damage that you can see. So Israel's pulverizing the buildings, people's lives, um, before they're even moving in with their armor to continue um, the fight. And then the next map is the population density that just so people understand uh, what we're looking at here. Um, the war in the north is what we reported on from, um, from well, we're going to continue to report on it today, uh, but that we've been reporting on since November. Um, the population concentrations in Gaza are significant in the populated areas, but you can see by that map that there's considerable space in between the areas uh, where there's concentrations of population. And so they focused their, uh, their tanks, as Ahmed was saying, people don't know where their tanks are in the north right now because they've largely pulled them back to the buffer zone areas and are just carrying out um, raids from there, which is what they're promising to do. Uh, for the year 2024. Not sure how that's going to uh, work out for them, considering that the longer they're in these positions, the more ability um, the resistance is able to hit them. So um, they're, they cut across the Gaza Strip. And we remember early on those shows uh, when, we, when Israel was bragging about how they made it to the sea and how they cut off Gaza. You can see from this population map that that's not a hard thing to do. They just drove through uh, empty space, which their settlements had previously been in, uh, in order to cut the Gaza Strip up like this. The settlements were built that way, uh, purposefully, militarily built um, to occupy territory, um, to split up the continuity of the Palestinian population centers. So just, um, just to give you an idea, uh, for now we're moving into Darabala. That's in the, the central area. These are the central camps, refugee camps. Um, in the middle area, as people call it. And that's where the, fr uh, the thrust of Israel's invasion is right now. They're in Barej. Um, and, and, and can I just say, sorry to interrupt you, John, that uh, several of our contributors in that area have had to evacuate their homes in recent days, particularly from in and around Marhazi camp and Der al-Balah. And we're doing our best to stay in touch with them. Uh, but uh, they are reporting really horrifying conditions. All of Merazi camp was ordered to evacuate, and some of them have uh, moved to Deir el-Balah and others to Rafah, where, um, which is becoming increasingly crowded and uh, has not yet been, it's been targeted by airstrikes, but not yet by uh, much Israeli ground activity. But I just wanted to point out that these things we're seeing on the map um, 
of course we know it, but they're affecting people that we know and are in touch with and upending their lives in horrifying Because that's ways. where they, Israel told people to go, right? Um, Wadi Gaza is marked on that map there. You can see the population concentrations just below there. They told people to go there. Um, and now they're attacking those places. And as Ahmed described, people have been moving. Um, people didn't just move from their house to these new makeshift refugee camps. They've moved four and five times uh, during this war. I mean, some some families, some of my friends have moved a dozen times. Um, and that's, I'm sure, the same with, with a lot of people. Um, they're constantly on the move trying to uh, protect their lives against these um, 30,000 airstrikes and 100,000 artillery shells that uh, the Americans gave to the Israelis to drop on uh, the people of Gaza. So um, let's go take a look at some of these videos here. We'll start um, with the video in the north, number three. Um, this is Qassam um, fighting uh, on the edges of Gaza City, which has a lot of the themes that we've talked about uh, before, uh, moving through walls. Here we have multiple shooters, um, um, with elevated shooting positions, Kassam's noting that they have multiple shooters here with a tank unit on the street down below. Elevated shooting positions, which are more dangerous for the tanks. Um, and on the video, we're seeing the tanks be hit from the upper window uh, by both, it appears, by both of the shooters. Um, this is a using an attack tunnel that it will be more and more um, common if this um, uh, third phase that Israel's calling it um, is actually uh, what Maureen talked about in her article. Uh, uh, if it actually is a shift in uh, the way that Israel carries out this war, uh, the way that Israel says they're going to do is draw down their combat. They're going to put their reserve soldiers back into the economy because their economy is flagging. Um, they're going to um, carry out targeted raids from the buffer zone. And so their tanks are going to remain inside of the Gaza Strip. Um, and this just puts them in position, as we see in this video here, um, we're watching a, an attack tunnel be used to access the buffer zone to access the Israeli armored vehicles. Also, what we're seeing here in these videos um, increasingly are um, more, uh, more, I don't want to say more skilled, but uh, more skilled <laughs> fighters, more prepared fighters. We're starting to see tactical uh, gear, as we see in this video. Um, starting to come out, um, which I think is just a clue, um, which was not surprising that Qassam didn't just throw all of their uh, best forces um, at the pointy end of the spear of the Israeli invasion, but are actually uh, going to wait until they settle in and carry out these more dynamic types of attacks that have uh, been going on this week. Like Qassam just released, uh, uh, a, a, since we last saw you folks, our audience out there, um, Kassam released numbers saying that they had hit 42 um, Israeli armored vehicles, killed 22 soldiers, which seems like a, a very reasonable um, number. Israel's still hiding their casualties uh, considerably. On 52 operations that include snipers and these Yassines RPGs, their homemade RPGs, um, ambushes, their booby-trapping tunnels, um, they booby they're blowing up houses with troop positions inside them. They blew up four tunnel entrances. They just released a video today that we'll have on the show for you next time um, of them blowing up a tunnel entrance with Israeli soldiers. Um, they're setting up minefields because they have time and access now to set up minefields. 
Um, we're starting to see surface-to-air missiles, um, uh, man-portable surface-to-air missiles being fired at helicopters, which is something that we've been um, wondering about. It seems pretty clear that Qassam is not targeting uh, medical evacuations out of Gaza, um, which is something interesting, um, and I guess uh, seems to be a principled position because it seems like these helicopters are within reach of these fighters. Um, and so what we're seeing here is that's what the tanks look like when they're in the buffer zone. They're outside of the city area. They're in this agricultural area, um, and they're able to be monitored from the high points inside the Gaza Strip that the Palestinians still have, even though all of these buildings have um, been destroyed. And, you know, like the Washington Post um, described this war as the most destructive war. And they, their examples were Dresden from World War II and Germany. Um, they don't send their social media reporter on that to try to figure out uh, why that uh, is happening and being justified. And as Ahmed said, also gleefully supported by genocide supporters in the West who are supported by the media that they're getting. That's not detailing what's happening. It's not we're not talking in the media about the systematic destruction of hospitals and what that looks like, the systematic destruction of schools. Um, and universities like he was talking about. And um, and so what we're seeing here is uh, after this video tomorrow, can you show that New York Times headline? Because I just want to show while, while we're watching these videos of the North, which clearly show skilled fighters able to reach the Israelis constantly. They're releasing these videos every day. These videos that I'm showing you have all been released since you last saw us on this show. Um, I'm not saving up the best. These are just, uh, I, I sort through them, but these are uh, all from the days since we last saw you, which clearly shows that Israel does not have dismantled Hamas's military capabilities in northern Gaza. So uh, the New York Times uh, abides by Israel's censor, downplaying the most significant attack against Israeli uh, military infrastructure by Hezbollah in the north downplaying that, calling it symbolic and a tiny, what do they say, small military base. Um, and then on the other hand, regurgitating these headlines that I want to save for all of time that say Israel says it dismantled Hamas's military capabilities in northern Gaza, um, which is clearly uh, ridiculous. Um, the pace of the resistance hasn't slowed at all. Um, Israel's had more than a thousand armored vehicles targeted. Um, we've seen on camera more than 300 of them hit on camera. Um, we've seen them being towed away. Um, and in these uh, in videos that I'll show you coming, uh, you'll see uh, destruction of tanks. So maybe we could go to no, uh, number four tomorrow of uh, Sarai al-Quds, because it's not just Hamas's. You don't need to just dismantle Hamas, which is not what's happening. Um, you also need to do that with all of the other armed faction. And here's Sarai Al-Quds uh, operating in Tufa and Daraj, which is the area outside uh, the old city of Gaza, in Gaza City. So they're still fighting in these areas and clearly have no control over these areas. The Institute for the Study of War um, said that, the, that three uh, uh, Qassam battalions um, are combat ineffective out of 40,000 fighters. So three out of 40, 40 uh, battalions. Well, if, if I'm not wrong, John, the Institute for the Study of the War is is the same uh, neocon organization that uh, kept telling us that Ukraine was winning. Yes. Well, they're not telling us that Israel's winning because three battalions out of 40 is not 
um, for, for a genocide that, I mean, we're saying 23,000, the numbers of dead in Gaza are far higher than that. And we know that. We know there's people under the rubble. We know that because the hospitals have been collapsed, people aren't able to report on the casualties. They're just uh, unable to, to keep those kind of counting statistics up. Um, and so we're watching a genocide that's supported um, in huge sectors of the West, and even their propaganda outlets, their, their think tanks that they invest all this money in, are saying that only three of the battalions are combat ineffective. And combat ineffective is just a descriptor um, that, that says that you are fighting as a guerrilla force, which is what the Kassam Brigades are anyway. And it's a temporary condition because you can reconstitute yourself um, by putting your fighters from different brigades uh, and battalions into um, the ones that have been degraded in some way. So we're clearly seeing that that's not the case. Um, and here we're seeing a Sarai Al-Quds video with them hitting uh, four or five tanks um, in in the north, in the areas that Israel is saying um, that they control. And if we go to the next one tomorrow after this, um, Qassam is also fighting in this area here. And we're going to watch them here use uh, a Yassin shooter is going to use a ladder here to climb up and get over the fence uh, to hit uh, an Israeli engineering troop carrier here um, that we can see successfully is hit. Um, and they're going to show in this video the smoking, smoldering uh, ruins of the armored personnel carrier, which has a crew of nine in it. Um, so somehow they had to evacuate that crew. I, I, I believe in that video, uh, we don't have the sound on, but if I recall correctly, John, the, there's actually a, a voiceover from Qassam that says that they watched that troop carrier burning, and I think they said that, that, that in 24 hours, there was no attempt to, to rescue. Yeah, that, that, that is that video. Um, they watched it burn for, for the whole day. So, um, and again, you're seeing tactical gear being used here. Um, you're starting to see these forces. These are Israelis that we're watching right now outside of their D9 bulldozer um, that they use to destroy uh, what's left of the houses and pile them up in ways to try to defend their forces. But what we're watching right now uh, for, for the listeners um, we're watching Kassam be literally right across the street from this force, monitoring them from the window, hitting them from across the street. This is not uh, spray and pray stuff. This is very close quarters combat. Um, and here we have a fighter checks his watch, elevated shooting position from a building that's the right in front checking. of the Israeli tank. And that's an uh, Israeli, uh, that, that's a Merkava 4-5. That's a brand new tank that's, uh, that's in service there being hit and its active protection system not showing. And now they're showing captured gear from that same, uh, from that, those same attacks. So significant John, qualitative increase in military operations, both in the north and here in northern Gaza. John, that video, I think it's going to keep ru running. Uh, at first, when I saw uh, this, the, that fighter check his watch, it didn't make any sense. But uh, the Israelis, I think it was the Israelis, uh, released a video, released a, a still photo which they had captured or found somewhere of Muhammad Daif, the uh, commander in chief of the uh, the. Uh, he's actually called the uh, chief of staff of the Palestinian resistance and has become a mythical figure. 
and they released this photo of him where he looks like he's on a picnic or something and he's looking at his watch like that. So do you think that people are correct when they're saying that this video is a reference to that, that it's sort of mocking the Israelis and, and again showing how aware the Qassam fighters are of what is happening in the outside world? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's very, very possible. And showing that photo of Muhammad Adef is is that that photo itself. Israel has said that he he had lost three of uh, his four arms and legs um, and that they the only photo of him that they show uh, was like from his school uh, years, like when he was young. And now they're showing they they released that photo just the other day. So yes, I think we're seeing the interplay between uh, information operations on the Israeli side and the Palestinian side, and clearly showing that they have command and control, um, putting lie to that New York Times headline and to the Israeli propaganda. Um, because again, referring to Ahmed, he's saying that their families aren't able to communicate with their children who are in different places in the Gaza Strip, um, but. But the fighters are uh, apparently have the ability to interact with uh, international news media and the Israeli army, um, which just shows that there's nothing like command and control collapsing, despite the the, the war crimes yeah. that have been carried out uh, all throughout the Gaza Strip. So we're we, watching we the genocide that being justified can, this way. We can uh, throw it up, Tamara. I just uh, dropped that uh, tweet from Israel I24 News. Uh, with the photo of Muhammad Dev, if you would like to put it up. Yeah, there you go. So um, that that photo was released by uh, uh, Israel. And then I think the very same day or the next day, uh, that Qassam video comes out where the fighter looks at his watch and it seems to be a, a, a mocking reference to this photo in terms of telling the Israelis, you know, yeah, and just to say, we know from October 7th that Qassam also has the speed of each of the armored vehicles. They know they knew on the raid on October 7th how long they had at each spot, um, at, at each military spot, because they, they had calculated the distance and the speed of each type of vehicle, the Hummer versus the armored vehicle versus the tank. Um, so we know that they have this kind of detailed information. Um, that it's possible that they're also timing them. But I think that that I think we're looking at I think the answer to the question could very well be right here. And we're going to have a decade of documentaries where we're going to ask uh, people these questions and find out. Um, but but the, the nuance and sophistication of the information operations uh, are, are they seem to almost be increasing as the war goes on. There's nothing indicating um, degrading of this um, of this kind of uh, information. But this isn't just in the north tomorrow. Let's move to the central area and, and, and to the south because Magazi has been under attack. Uh, the civilians have been under attack. Um, and they're shelling civilians. But again, we're seeing a, a Namer troop carrier, um, Israel's most up-armored um, and new troop carrier, ca uh, containing uh, 12 soldiers in it. And we're seeing here um, Qassam fighters that are able to get within, uh, you know, what is that, 40 meters um, away, which is too close um, 
for the active protection systems on these tanks um, to engage, which is the only reason, one of the reasons uh, why the Israelis aren't dismounted beside their tanks um, is because the active protection systems fire um, to try to uh, intercept these incoming rounds and it makes it dangerous for troops. Um, so what we're seeing right here in in military in urban warfare, um, there should be dismounted soldiers on the Israeli side who are preventing these kind of pot shots from happening with their troops. Um, but they're not because first of all, Israel doesn't care if it controls the area. Their attempt isn't to control the whole area. They're not trying to move forward and achieve some objective. They're just destroying the place um, and hoping in the process of destroying the place that they can come up with um, with various types of tunnels and intelligence by doing that. There's no systematic, um, there's no apparent systematic um, understanding of what Israel's doing, which is why, um, again, referring to Ahmed's family, they don't know where the tanks are because the tanks aren't moving block by block, house by house. Um, they're not moving in a detailed, systematic way. Um, we're watching uh, heroic resistance from, from fighters uh, who who don't have all uh, the American weaponry given to them um, in these uh, airlifts that are happening every day. And they're still able to fight uh, after this time. We'll show the next one um, uh, tomorrow, number eight. This is uh, in Khan Yunus here. And we're going to watch Sarai al-Quds again. It's not just Qassam fighting. There's 10 factions that are involved in this fight. Um, and we're watching a fighter here uh, in sandals uh, because... The, the 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 prerequisite is to just have comfortable footwear. It doesn't matter uh, the type that you have. So he's here tiptoeing through the neighborhood in order to get at an Israeli position in a house, which they're monitoring. We're watching for the listeners. We're monitoring. We're watching Sarai Al-Quds watch them from the window across the street. It looks like you could touch them. Um, they have curtains, and now we're watching them poke a hole, the Israelis, poke a hole, a sniper hole in the wall, and the Palestinians are watching them with their cameras make this secret hole in the wall. Um, and so this, this level of detail, this isn't just the attack that we're watching. We're watching the fact that Sarai Al-Quds has intelligence. Now we're watching a thermobaric uh, RPG-7 warhead be fired, which is a fuel igniter, um, which will burn anything in the in the window in the building that it hits and it's hitting the window with a direct hit with three soldiers inside and then multiple shooters um, are continuing the ambush because they have staked out this building um, because they have freedom of movement all through these areas this is in Khan Yunus in the south um, total freedom of movement for these fighters all through the south um, it's exactly the same as in the north so those are those are the videos from the Gaza Strip. We Kassam released some videos today um, that looked incredible. That we'll we'll bring on next show and and break down. Um, but I, I also just wanted to take an opportunity to bring uh, the resistance in the West Bank into uh, the show because we just uh, are never able to cover it because of the time. I see we're already over time um, because we run out of time with so much to cover in Gaza. And wanted to bring a little bit of Lebanon in. So maybe we can show what happened in Janine uh, here the other day, which is also a qualitative increase. We're watching a, a paramilitary border troop and IDF joint 
um, border police raid uh, into Janine. This is outside of the Janine refugee camp. The invasion hasn't even made it into the camp. It looks like about a 15 vehicle convoy. And the first vehicle on the convoy is hit by an explosive charge um, that is surprisingly effective. Um, if there is more of that uh, available in the West Bank, these invasions by Israel um, are going to start falling into problems because this is, again, a qualitative increase in the attacks. Of course, Janine is, is famous for these kind of attacks, and this neighborhood uh, is the neighborhood of a famous uh, Islamic Jihad commander that the um, uh, Sarail Quds gave a shout out to uh, in this video for his uh, for his neighborhood. Um, again, both Qassam and Sarail Quds, of course, and Hezbollah, have a significant focus on the history of their fighters, of the history of their resistance, and keeping those people uh, uh, in, like like we said with uh, with Dave. Uh, the commander of the Kassam Brigades, um, the Kassam Brigades are keeping these um, these historical founders of the party, like Sheikh Ahmed Yassin, who is uh, the namesake of the weapon that's being used constantly against Israel. Um, and so the Yassin uh, is keeping uh, Ahmed Yassin alive um, and constantly haunting the Israelis because, um, you know, Palestine wasn't an empty place in 1948. Um, there's a long nationalist movement, of course, uh, um, and, and Palestinians are keeping that uh, alive with their resistance. And there's constant reflection on the history of that resistance that I think is important to bring up. And hopefully on future shows, we can get more into that because um, keeping that history alive is something that I think it's important to know when we're going forward in this conflict, that this war that we're watching right now will reverberate through history. Um, and it doesn't make it easier for Israel to operate and to live in the Middle East. Indeed. Uh, John, thank you so much. Uh, and, and Tamara, and I know that takes a lot of preparation and planning and um, we, we always appreciate it as do our listeners and viewers. Um, uh, so yeah, we will have more videos uh, on our next live stream. Um, before we go, Asa, did you want to shout out some of the comments that we've received? Yeah, loads of great comments today. Um, support from all around the world. Um, thanks to our guests. Um support of course for ahmed and his family um as always support for our dear departed rifat um and support for the electronic intifada um and uh yeah people definitely liked the washington post segment um one viewer said let's all donate to ei and send copies of the receipts to <laughs> elizabeth Droskin at the washington post um yeah <laughs> so thank you everyone for watching uh, and commenting absolutely uh great well yes and and as we mentioned asa you're gonna do an interview with amal Saad about the situation in lebanon and hezbollah uh resisting uh israeli uh violence and um so we'll we'll keep everyone posted on that 
um, as well as our next live stream, which we haven't scheduled yet. But if you go to electronicintifada.net and uh, sign up on our email list, we'll of course uh, send you notifications as well as um, if you subscribe to our channel on YouTube, you will get notified hopefully uh, for our next live stream. As always, uh, thank you so much to everyone for your support, for liking and sharing, especially these videos. Um, uh, these episodes really uh, are able to reach so many more people when the algorithm is in our favor. So do like this episode and share it. Uh, yeah, and it re it really annoys the Washington Post. It really with, does. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's keep that up, people. Keep yeah. it up. Yeah. Um, if you really want to annoy the Washington Post, keep sharing our articles, send them <laughs> to friends, family, uh, and, and of course the videos too. That's right. Ali, John, Asa, Tamara, everyone behind the scenes at the Electronic Intifada, thank you all so much. We'll see you next time. Be safe. Thank you. Thank you.